Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Breakfast.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Alistair Owen. Hello, Alistair. Hello. Lovely to be here. Indeed, indeed. We've come to talk about your book, The Art of Screen Adaptation, where you spoke to many top writers about the skill of adaptation uh, for screen. And this is a book uh, published under the Creative Essentials banner, which, as I was saying to you as we were starting, you're the third under this. Uh, under this collection of uh, film-related uh, books that are around, to uh, to co- author to come on uh, to come on the podcast. So, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And we are going to talk in specifics. We're going to we're going to look at five key elements that, that we could draw out because we couldn't do the whole book because there's more than five chapters. But using my my tried and tested five and five times five minutes format, we're going to look at five elements. But before we do. Do you want to talk more broadly as to what as to what you see the book as and why why you felt the need to write it? I'll pull pull it together. Um, well, it's uh, as you say, it's um, uh, the subtitle is "Top Writers Reveal Their Craft." Um, Creative Essentials originally came to me um, with the proposal to write a how-to book on screen adaptation, which of course is is broadly what the rest of the Creative Essentials series are. Um, I, I am a screenwriter. I have done some screenwriting. I'm not a produced screenwriter. And the notion of sitting down and writing a book telling other screenwriters or what, you know, um, wannabe screenwriters how to adapt struck me as a, a trifle arrogant. So I sort of repitched the idea back at um, the commissioning editor, Hannah Patterson, who is herself a playwright and screenwriter. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't think I've, I've quite got the... Um, the arrogance to do that. But what I will do for you is I'll round up, let's say, a dozen of the best screenwriters in the country and ask them how to adapt, and, and we'll do it that way. Um, I'd done three books of interviews before, um, it, between the age of about 25 and 30, back in the uh, early noughties. Um, book of interviews with Bruce Robinson, who wrote and directed with Nell and I, um, and, uh, another anthology of interviews with, with British screenwriters, which is the first time that had been done, uh, and a book of interviews with Christopher Hampton, the, the um, writer of uh, Dangerous Liaisons and the director of Carrington. Um, uh, and I never actually thought I'd get a chance to do another one of these interview books because um, when I started doing them, there were a lot of them. Um, Fable were doing them particularly, Scorsese on Scorsese, Schrader on Schrader. One of my really favorites. good books. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they're fantastic books um, written by you know, academics, film scholars, filmmakers, um, really in-depth from the horse's mouth Q&As on, on you know, really fantastic people and how they set about their craft. And I was thrilled to do 
three of my own. In fact, Hampton on Hampton um, was part of sort of part of that Faber series, albeit that it came in through the drama department rather than the film section. So, so the the, the opportunity to do another one, I would much rather have done it this way um, than than write a book on how you adapt, um, because. Apart from anything else, I got to re-interview a couple of writers um, who I talked to previously, Hossein Amini and just say Christopher Hampton, and meet a whole bunch of new ones, um, people I greatly admired, people whose films and TV series I'd seen over the years. And that's one of the pleasures of, of doing something like this. You you get to sit down with, with other writers who have done it, um, and usually they're lovely and they're very frank and, you know, they give you their time and, and you learn stuff from them and, you know... Um, I would almost have paid to do it, to be honest. So it's uh, it's always a thrill. It is. It's. Um, I remember when I first got uh, the first book. That I really noticed this kind of format was uh, there's a punk rock book called Please Kill Me, which is like a, a sort of oral history of punk, and it's it's just basically a cut and paste of people's views of what happened, as opposed to a kind of historical view. It was literally the horse's mouth. I was wondering whether I might because I've, I've I've stuck to my my terrain my turf which is which is films um albeit that my next book is a book of interviews with a, a novelist and screenwriter william boyd um the christopher hampton book was as much theater as it was film so i've sort of branched out in different directions i have thought it would be really interesting i'm sure somebody must have done it maybe what you've just said there um but a, a, a book um a book of interviews with a single band i thought would be a really interesting project which is what's brilliant about your book is that what you get is not how to adapt a book, but you get how 12, 12 different writers of, 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 of sort of disparate work uh, across genres and all kinds, how they go about it. And, and, and in a way that to me plays into the old notion of just writing full stop, you know, you'll find your way of doing it. And it's really interesting to, to, to see writers who, you know, have made it in inverted commas, explain how they make it work because they're certainly not the same are they oh goodness no um i think that's one of the most interesting things about the book is is how different how different the approaches can be um and uh, i mean there are certain answers that kind of stacked up one way or the other i you know for example do you like using voiceover more said they didn't than said they did um or do you like the original the author of the source material to be involved if they're if they're living and some were an emphatic yes and one or two were an emphatic no. What we're going to do then, and this, I'm saying this to you and for the listener's benefit because you, you know this, but but um, we're going to do, we're going to take five, five, five um, case studies in the book and through those case studies, you're going to sort of extrapolate a kind of lesson learned, I suppose, or, or a focal point to sort of consider when thinking about adapting material that's not written for screen originally but we are going to follow my kind of five great format so it's five minutes per each one and i'll just for the uh, for the benefit of the tape when pig who is the name of my mate's uh, french bulldog when pig who is in fact my iphone now barks that's when uh, that's when we'll move on to the next one only so we get an equal amount of time on each one so without further ado are you ready sir I absolutely am. Okay, clock's ticking, and the first one is uh, Drive, screenplay by uh, hosting... uh, Hamini. Hamini. Hello. Nina? No, sorry, pal. Why don't you uh, call back later? We're closed. I could, but I think Nina would be upset that you made him wait. Can I ask what this is about? I have something of his. And that would be? million dollars. Please hold. You got something fucking belongs to me? Seems that way. And you call it me? Why? Expecting to buy my own shit back from you? I'm not selling it. I'm gonna give you a time and a place, and you're gonna come and get it. Do you understand? And what do you get out of it? Just that. Out of it. And your partners are happy with that. I don't have any partners. 
you discuss this with anybody else? No, just you. You're not very good at this, are you? There's a case study on Drive and an interview with Hossin. So, do you want to talk about what 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 you want to what you want to draw from this this section of the book? Well, I think the thing that stood out for me with Drive was um, is the opening of the film. Um, how that compares with the opening of the book, um, and it's basically, I mean, the object lesson is how to write a great opening, really. Um, and within that, I don't just mean write as in um, it, it looks great when it's shot and it's a fantastic opening for the film, which it absolutely is. Um, but also that that stage prior or the several stages prior, it's the physical words on the page. Um, finding your voice as a screenwriter in the in the quite restrictive form of, of a screenplay can be can be quite a struggle. Um, screenwriting manuals sometimes give you quite conflicting advice on how you should physically, um, write the prose on the page. Some um, say you should be, you know, very spare, leave the work to the director. Um, I don't think many of the writers I interviewed would tend to agree with that. Um, Hossein Amini certainly doesn't. Um, so I'll come to that in a sec. But um, I think what strikes you if, if you open James Salis's novel, um, you know, page chapter one, page one, um, is that it starts in this incredibly cinematic way, um, much later as he sat with his back against an inside wall of a Motel 6 just north of Phoenix, watching the pool of blood lap toward him. Wow. You know, you think this is the kind of book that's just going to jump straight onto the screenplay page and, and straight onto the screen. Um, it, it, it's uh, now whether or not James Salis was, was thinking um, in cinematic terms when he was writing it. Um, those kind of tricks of, of cinema narrative, I'm sure, have fed into modern fiction enormously. But what he's doing there is, you know, he's starting, as they say, in medias rage, right in the middle of the action. Driver is sitting in a motel room, you know, with, with blood and bodies around him. And you might think, looking at that, well, that's fantastic. I'll just start with that. Um, and then you flash back to find out how he got there. Um, and the book contains other flashbacks, too, um, flashbacks to his 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 childhood and growing up and leaving home, who, how he became the character he became. Um, and in finding a, a different story, uh, as it were, for the, for the film, um, one of the things Hoss had to do was, um, was, was straight line it somewhat. So the flashbacks have gone completely. Um, you only know about him more or less as much as you learn in the course of the movie. He doesn't say a, an awful lot. He's a very silent character. The other thing Hoss had to grapple with when he was writing the script was that um, some of the main characters don't necessarily intersect with each other or they enter late, which is something that's quite problematic to do on screen. Um, so, uh, and the story itself, the way he put it, is it, it kind of it wasn't one of it wasn't a sequential narrative. Um, this leading to that, leading to the other, building to a climax. So he kind of had to find a, a straight line movie story within what feels like. Uh, a very cinematic novel. What is cinematic about the novel then is not necessarily the structure. Um, it's 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 the prose. It's this it's this taciturn man with no name, shame style lead character. It's the kind of noiry, punchy way that it's written on the page, which Hoss has, has um, to some extent replicated in the way um, he writes it. Um, and what's so great about the opening? is um, he, Hoss worked out that it's going to be quite 30 pages worth of script, actually, before you get into any serious action, before um, Driver is crossed and starts to, you know, meet out his revenge plan. Um, and therefore, you need to do an opening scene which sets out your stall for the audience. It's called Drive. Uh, it's about a getaway drive. So what's the first thing you really need to do in the movie? You need to show him on a getaway, you know, in the same way that now certain people coming to the drive, um, as indeed Hoss did and as indeed the director, Nicholas Wining Reefen did, they will have they will have seen um, Walter Hill's The Driver. They will have seen Michael Mann's Thief. 
and Walter Hills, the driver, starts with Ryan O'Neill driving. Michael. Go on, sorry, finish your thought. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael Mann's thief um, starts with uh, James Kahn uh, thieving. So, you know, you really need to start uh, the movie as you mean to go on. And just add to that, and he, and he mentions it in, in, in the interview, is uh, Jean-Pierre Melville's um, Le Samurai, which obviously a huge influence on Michael Mann as well. So it's like a, it's like a lineage, you know. And I did, as a, as a, I won't be able to do this for the other four, but for this one, I, I have geeked out on Drive and um, in the past. So... I worked out that, that the samurai is 12 minutes before the first word is spoken. I think it's eight minutes in driver and then it's six minutes in drive. It's six minutes if you exclude the opening bit of where he's on the phone laying out his ground rules to his new client. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of ignored that bit. I just love that but that atmosphere, that idea of who the hell are we following and what the hell are they doing, which, and, and, and Hossin mentions sort of the man with no name, Shane. And it's and it's it is and and I think it's interesting because because I read the book after the film, which obviously he didn't get to do because he wrote the book he wrote the film of the book. Um, and when you read the book, it's sort of really disconcerting to go into it not without this classic classic um, story of the kind of the man with a history that you know is bad, but he's trying to turn good, and no matter what he does, he ends up having to lean on his bad side to get through the next bit of life and so therefore destined forever to be uh, on the run from somebody else or meet his maker one or the other we're going to jump ahead now to the next one which is a fantastic movie um one that i can't imagine trying to adapt the novel if i'm honest with you and so it's hats off to christopher hampton for uh, for atonement Yes, uh, I think this is one of the finest um, screen adaptations ever written. Um, and what's interesting about it is it goes right to the heart of what everyone first thinks about, probably when thinking about adaptation, which is how faithful should you be to the novel. Um, I always felt a lot of sympathy for Christopher Hampton's approach, both to fiction and nonfiction. His approach to fiction is, um, which he derived from um, uh, watching the films adapted by Harold Pinter and reading those screenplays is that the better the book, the closer you should stick to the book. Now, that's not necessarily a popular viewpoint among, you know, screenwriters, directors, anyone approaching an adaptation. Um, I happen to agree with it, and he approaches, he uses the same approach for nonfiction. I mean, his words, he's always been very well served by being faithful to the facts. So what's interesting about Atonement is he wrote the original drafts of the script for um, Richard Eyre to direct. And the Iron I read that draft in order to interview him for Hampton on Hampton. And it adopted a structure not unlike Harold Pinter's um, approach to the go-between, a sort of flashback structure of, a, of, of an elderly woman um, in a car on her way to uh, a, social, a social gathering. Um, and you flash back from there to the, 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 which is principally the third short section of Ian McEwan's novel. And in his screenplay, you flash back from there to the long first section, which is in this country house on a hot summer's day prior to World War II. And the slightly shorter second section of the book, um, which is um, set during the retreat from Dunkirk. I thought it read brilliantly. I was very much looking forward to seeing it. Um, after the book came out, um, Hampton on Hampton, um, the uh, the script changed hands, as it were. Um, Richard Eyre left to direct notes on a scandal. Joe Wright came in. Christopher Hampton managed to survive the transition between directors, which doesn't always happen. Um, and Joe Wright loved what had been done, but he wanted it redone because what he wanted to do was move back to the book, the structure of the book, which is basically you start in this country house, you then have this radical change of direction and suddenly you're in Dunkirk. And then you have this very short third section, which, which casts a, um, a, a sort of twists what you've seen, quite some of what you've seen quite considerably, because part of the point of the novel is it is, it is, a, it is a fiction about fiction. Um, and, and so the way Christopher describes it, it was actually a, a very unusual instance of an adaptation which 
which rather than moving further away from the novel, actually moved closer to it. Yeah, I must, I must, I must admit, Alistair, that the uh, when I read when I read that uh, he said when Joe came up to the film, the first thing he said was, "I like the script very much, but we're going to have to start from scratch." There are certain writers who would just want to lie down and cry at that point. I felt um, like it, and I hadn't done the work. Well, quite. Um, uh, well, I mean, of course, um, Christopher was to some extent inured to this because he did. Um, he did a number of drafts of David Lean's unrealized um, adaptation of uh, Joseph Conrad's Nostromo, um, and they spent a year on working on that together. And every few months, periodically, um, David Lean would say, "Right now, we've got to go back to page one." Um, so uh, he'd kind of been schooled in the hardest possible school of Knox. I don't imagine you, there's anyone tougher would have been anyone tougher to work with on a script than David Lean. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I do think it's a tremendous book. Um, they do manage to replicate the um, the sudden shifts, uh, those three sections of the book. Um, and interestingly, when I first saw it, I was I won't say I was left cold by it, but um, I really admired the novel, and I was slightly nonplussed by the film. And I sometimes think that really great adaptations take a bit of getting into. I felt the same thing about the talented Mr. Ripley the first time I saw that, and now I think that's a stone cold dead masterpiece. Um, so, so yeah. I, so the takeaway from Atonement for me is very much that you can, as Harold Pinter did, take a great novel, be faithful to it. Um, and still come up with a great movie. You don't have to make massive changes um, in terms of cutting stuff or creating new stuff or monkeying around with the structure. I mean, I would still love to have seen the Richard Eyre version with that structure, but um, ultimately it's, it's, it, I think it's one of the finest adaptations, not just because it's faithful, but because it stands next to the book as a distinct work of art in its own right, and you can take one or you can take both um, and enjoy either. I mean, I mean, given given how much work you've 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 sort of done with Christopher, oh, I'll I'll that question will will stay in the ether forever. Uh, we're going to jump forward to um, the book that I did for my GCSE back in nineteen eighty eight, Pride and Prejudice. Is it is it Deborah Mogach? Mogach is how I've always pronounced it. I hope that's right. I interviewed her. I should know. If it's wrong and she's listening at any point, apologies, Deborah. Is this your reply? Yes, sir. Are you... Are you laughing at me? No. Are you rejecting me? I'm sure that the feelings which, as you've told me, have hindered your regard will help you in overcoming it. Might I ask why, with so little endeavour at civility, I must repulse... And I might as well inquire why, with so evident a design of insulting me, you chose to tell me that you like me against your better judgment. No, believe me, I didn't If I was uncivil, then that is some excuse, but I have other reasons. You know I have. What reasons? Do you think that anything might tempt me to accept the man who has ruined, perhaps forever, the happiness of a most beloved sister? Do you deny it, Mr. Darcy? That you separated a young couple who loved each other, exposing your friend to the centre of the world for caprice, and my sister to its derision for disappointed hopes, and involving them both in misery of the acutest kind? I do not deny it. How could you do it? Because I believed your sister indifferent to him. Indifferent? I watched them most carefully and realised his attachment was deeper than hers. That's because she's shy. Bingley, too, is modest and was persuaded she didn't feel strong Because you suggested it. I did it for his own good. My sister hardly shows her true feelings to me. I suppose you suspect that his... his fortune had some bearing on the No, I wouldn't be your sister the dishonour, though it was suggested... What was? It was made perfectly clear that an advantageous marriage... Did my sister give that impression? No, no. No, there was, however, I have to admit, the matter of your family... Our want of connection! Mr Bingley didn't seem to vex no, himself about that. that. How, sir? It was the lack of propriety shown by your mother, your three younger sisters, even on occasion your father. Forgive me. You and your sister, I must exclude this. And what about Mr Wickham? Mr. Wickham. What excuse can you give for your, your behaviour towards him? You take an eager interest in that gentleman's He concerns. told me of his misfortunes. Oh, yes, his misfortunes have been very great indeed. You ruin his chances and yet you treat him with sarcasm. So this is your opinion of me. Thank you for explaining so fully. Perhaps these offences might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt my by my pride. honesty in admitting scruples about our relationship. 
Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your circumstances? And those are the words of a gentleman. What in particular is it about this 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 case study that appeals to you in terms of uh, highlighting a way forward for for writers wanting to adapt novels? Well, she's it was one very specific thing. Um, uh, it's one of it's one of a couple of um, uh, books that are mentioned within discussed within the art of screen adaptation where more than one of the writers in the book have done a version so obviously in the case of pride and prejudice you've got the film version uh, with kira knightley um, and matthew mcfadden which deborah mogich wrote and you've also got the the classic tv version with um colin firth and jennifer ely which andrew davis wrote andrew davis is another one of the writers in the book um another one is which we'll come to in a minute is great expectations now um, clearly, if you've got however many hours of television Andrew Davis did, uh, and you've only got two hours of film, you've got to make some choices. Um, and one of the choices that um, Deborah made, um, which is both, I think, really interesting in terms of corralling the material into a script of you know 100, 110, 120 pages, and also gives it a point of view, is precisely that point of view. She she stuck to. Um, uh, Lizzie Bennett's point of view. Um, she cut any scene from Jane Austen's novel which was not seen from or at least heavily featured Lizzie Bennett. Um, and so the film has this kind of singular um, thrust. It's a wonderful dogmatic choice, that, isn't it? I love it. Um, I, I, I would love to just do an adaptation now and, and have, a, have a go at that. Um, now, clearly, it's not going to necessarily work for every, every book if you are dealing with um, I don't know, a, a novel with many characters in, and part of the reason everybody liked it was because it had many characters in, and you might have a problem focusing it down to one. But Pride and Prejudice is about, what, 300, uh, 300 pages odd. Um, and um, it's third person. It's written in, you know, sort of omniscient Jane Austen narration. Um, nonetheless, um, focusing it down in that way, um, it does give you, and to do it without voiceover, um, if you were focusing on one character, then you might be tempted to use voiceover. Although, um, if a novel is written in the first person, I suppose it is more likely that you might contemplate using voiceover was written in the third person. But um, she also was very, very much wanted it to be. Um, it, she saw it as a story of um, how economics affected women at the time. Um, the um, um, Mrs. Bennett's desire to marry off her daughters is 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 motivated. Um, partly by the fact that she knows only too well that if she doesn't, that their future is not necessarily that rosy in a, in a male-dominated world. Um, and um, uh, seeing it from Lizzie's point of view as, as you know, someone she want, her mother wants to marry off and seeing Darcy through her, her eyes, it's, it is a different approach from the, the approach that Andrew Davis took, um, which was um, he, he saw it from both um, Darcy and, and Lizzie Bennett's Point of view, but as I said, he had the, he had the luxury of time and and to be able to do that. I do think that 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 decision to focus it in that way um, is what gives it, it as a film. It does have a it has a very interesting combination of um, lightness and um, um, an emotional depth. I think. Um, and I think partly, partly that that's the, the the speed of it. I think is partly because she made that decision to uh, to narrow it down to, to uh, Izzy's point of view. I thought it was interesting as well that, that you asked her about whether or not you know the novel the novel could be described as a rom com. And to to me, it was like you know thinking about having studied it as a as a kid, like then seeing the kind of rebirth of the rom com during the nineties with the Richard Curtis work. You kind of just thought. Well, yeah, the Pride and Prejudice is like the archetypal one that everything else seemingly would be built on, and yet her her immediate answer is no. I tried to cut again. I tried to 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 sort of fight that off that that temptation off to make it a rom com. Well, she described it as that she wanted to do what she described as the muddy hem version. In other words, it, it bugged her. It bugged her that in other adaptations of, of this book and books of this kind, you know, everyone was was so clean. Um, there's that fantastic sequence where Kira Knightley walks. Uh, all the way to um, uh, is it Netherfield um, uh, in her long dress and I, does it rain? It's certainly muddy and she she arrives looking a, you know a bit of a state and actually because of the way it's written because of the way Kira Knightley plays it 
she's sort of, you know, yes, her hems are a bit muddy, but she's had a great walk and she's feeling kind of quite energized. And when when the inhabitants of the hall look at her, askant, she's like, what? Uh, it's and I, I think Kira Knightley is is terrific in it, actually. Um, and, and Deborah talks about the importance of casting in that. Indeed. Well, there we go. There's Pig again, just interrupting us. Yeah, the point about Kira Knightley is is a it is it is a wonderful bit of casting and and in a way it's what deborah did is is you know is 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 only echoed more recently with uh, greta gerwig's little women you know that whole point of trying to focus down on the the either the economic reality of being a woman in a certain period of time compared to a woman now and making that the making that a key focal point of the story you're dramatizing as as well as the flights of fancy and the idea of being in love and stuff and coming of age. If you're going to adapt a uh, um, a book that has been adapted before, and especially now if it's a period piece, um, you know you've it's the question you will be asked um, by the people who you are going to try and finance it, or um, the, the the financiers that the company that hired you may be taking it to. It's always going to be why now. What is the what is the compelling reason to do another version of Pride and Prejudice now? What is the compelling reason to do another version of Little Women now? So those kind of approaches where you know it's about economics or it's about um, gender roles, uh, you, you see more of that these days. That's a lo- lovely segue into uh, a classic piece of literature. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Great Expectations as adapted by Sarah Phelps. Now, this one, um, it's about how small changes can make a big difference. Um, so, as I said, this is the other, um, one of the other uh, books um, talked about within the Art of Screen adaptation, which um, two of the writers in the book, in this case, Sarah Phelps and David Nichols, have both done adaptations of. Um, they both did adaptations for the BBC, uh, David Nichols for BBC Films, Sarah Phelps for BBC Drama, within about a year of each other. And they made very different um, adaptation choices, again, partly driven by the fact that Sarah had three hours and David had two. Um, and one of the first changes that Sarah Phelps makes, which it, it, you, you might not even notice it necessarily, um, but it has huge ramifications. Um, and you certainly would notice it if you were a fan of the book or you had were a fan of or had seen in any of the previous um, adaptations, most famously, of course, um, David Lean's uh, 1940s, I think it was 1940s or early 50s version. Um, you know, it's one of the most famous opening scenes in, in literature. Um, Pip in the graveyard, Magwitch um, accosting him. Uh, do you know what Whittles is? Do you know what a file is? Um, and off it runs to the forge to get the food and the file. Um, mm. What Sarah Phelps does is um, is when um, uh, when Ray Winston pops his head uh, above the dike and um, uh, all covered in mud, is he only says, "Do you know what a file is?" He's he's established that Pip is um, a blacksmith's boy. Um, he he's got the shackles on and he needs to get them off. He's, he's terrifying. Do you know what a file is? Yes, right, go and get me one. And off it runs. While he's getting the file, he sees the pie in the cupboard um, that, that, that his, um, that his uh, stepmother has, um, has baked. And not because he's afraid, uh, not out of fear, not because Magwitch um, Brown beat him into doing it, but out of the goodness of his heart, he adds to the order, as it were. Magwitch has ordered a file um, for delivery. And it adds to this order uh, of his own volition a pie, um, and it's that pie. It's it's the fact that out of the goodness of his heart, Pip um, sees that this man is in need of food um, that sticks with Magwitch all those years um, mm. later. You know, he he ends up in New South Wales. He becomes a sheep farmer. He 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 makes this fortune. Um, he makes Pip's great expectations come true. Um, and all this time, what is driving him is the fact that this little boy, out of the kindness of his heart, brought him some food. And it's such a brilliant, such a small but such a brilliant change that you can't help thinking that if, if 
Charles Dickens were around and were watching the adaptation, he might almost think he'd missed a trick there. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like it's sort of damning fake praise, isn't it? And, and I think that's great. And and and, and it's it's um, it kind of points to something that Sarah Phelps is, is very, very willing to do, which is she, um, and it's sort of it's not quite at the opposite pole from Christopher Hampton, but it is quite a different approach. Um, she finds, she takes um, adaptations, commissions, on the basis of, is there a story within this that I want to tell? which is, I think, quite subtly different from do I want to tell the novelist's story? Um, she finds within these classic books, whatever it is, you know, thematically or emotionally um, or plot-wise, that, that it is she wants to bring out, and then she brings it out. And that means chucking out um, scenes and characters and um, beloved lines of dialogue and throwing in new stuff to, because it's right for the new character she's created or to join the dots, then she will absolutely do and I, I thoroughly respect that. It's not my approach necessarily, but I do think that her adaptation of Great Expectations um, with Ray Winston and Gillian Anderson is one of the most moving that's been done. And I think it's because she finds that emotional core. And if she has to do that at the expense of, in inverted commas, what is Dickensian, uh, although she did actually write for that series, uh, interestingly enough, then she'll do that. She's not hidebound. I mean, not, not that it needs me to say it, but that's a reflection maybe of Sarah Phelps. This isn't this isn't to say other people aren't in the book, but the way the, for her to assert that is like that. That's a reflection of confidence in in what she's trying to achieve overall, as opposed to as opposed to slavishly deliver what everybody expects. Yeah, slavishly deliver is probably the last the last phrase I would ever think of in connection with Sarah. I mean, you know, I don't I don't know her that well. I know her, I met her once, and um, we've exchanged emails, and and um, I've watched her her stuff. Um, but you know, I think there's a reason why she's one of the most has has come to prominence um, as one of the most um, foremost adapters for television uh, of our era. And I think it is because she has, you know, she she tackles stuff with this enormous personality and confidence. Because in that in, in that want to 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 choose something because it's a story she wants to tell, as it were, there's almost like there's it's like almost like she wants she's willing to find the story within the novel as a, which is for screen as opposed to which is a, a kind of a very i guess a very true way of adapting for screen in a way isn't it it's almost saying right i've got all these playing pieces and what i'm going to do is then arrange them in a way that does does the best for screen not the best for the novel absolutely um and um uh, she talks about how in when you're adapting classic literature quite often um people have a go at the the finished product because um, because they think you're violating the novel. But she makes the point that actually sometimes what what they think you're violating is their memory of the novel, which may be something different. And I've since thought of something else as well, particularly with classics like Great Expectations, which been, have been adapted many times, um, and whether there are great classic adaptations like the David Lee. I think sometimes people can get on their high horse about a new adaptation um, that it's a violation of the novel. And they may not even have read the novel, or if they have, they don't remember it. What they're getting upset about is that they think it's a violation of a previous adaptation, which is something else again. Yeah, I, I remember, I mean, recent years we had the uh, the ABCs of Murder, um, which was a wonderful piece of work from my point of view. But then I started after it had gone out as broadcast. There was all these, all this, this negative response to say, "Oh, it, it ruined it. it. It was played fast and loose with the original source material." Yada yada yada. And you're like, your memory of a famous detective invented by an author is not the job of the screenwriter who's doing it this time round. No, not necessarily. Um, I, I, I mean. To, to, to mess around with Dickens, who's, who's um, very long dead, and, and, uh, is one thing. To mess around with Agatha Christie, a very vigilant estate, and um, a, lot of, a lot of fans that know those books inside out and back to front. I mean, that, if, if there is, if, that, that really is a testament to how, how um, willing Sarah is to, uh, to write what she wants to write from the material rather than do a strict adaptation of the material, because, you know, um, mystery novels. Um, I've never adapted one. I imagine they would. They, they must be pretty tricky, especially if you start. If if as the one thing Christie is known for is her Swiss watch plotting. If you start to take the watch apart, then you've got to put a new watch together. 
um, and you've got to put it together in a way that makes sense and delivers all the character stuff that you wanted to do. Um, and I think Sarah manages to do that. Um, John Malkovich as Poirot is fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. No. As I was saying, it's sort of it's interesting. It, it, it's what you were saying. It's just what you were saying about how you're playing with people's memory of stuff. It's a bit like. Um, I think now, like, I guess, I guess, you know, music acts that come back after years away, you know, and it's like, it's not the same because the singer's dead and stuff. And, and like, and people go, well, it's not, it's not, it's not Led Zeppelin anymore. It's not this, it's not that. You're like, well, all right, you've got your memory. It doesn't matter. It's not gone. Well, I I always, I always think that, you know, people sometimes get so upset about film and I'm, I'm guilty of this too from time to time. People get so upset about film or TV adaptations. It's as if you've chucked every available copy of the book into an incinerator and the only thing that now exists is the film. Well, you know, if you don't like it, don't watch it or stop watching it or never watch it again and go and read the book again. You know, it's still there. It hasn't changed. My masochistic thing is, is that I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre so much and I've and I've endured every single prequel, sequel, <laughs> and they've never lived up to it. They've ruined it every time. But I keep trying because I want that, you know, you're hoping. And it, it doesn't hurt me. It just, like, it just disappoints you because you think, that's so brilliant. Why have you wasted your time with this? But anyway, that's, but that's for somebody else to worry about. And we're going to move on. We're going to move into non-fiction, adapt, adapting non-fiction now with uh, Nick Hornby, and his, and the adaptation of Wild, which, as I was in our in our introductory section, I was laughing to myself at, at even how he got to first got the source material, let alone the challenges of adapting it to screen. He read a review of it, I think, in the in the New York Times. Um, he trusted the reviewer. Um, he did. He clearly didn't. If the story is to be believed, and it's a great anecdote. Um, he clearly didn't read very closely into the review, or the review didn't give very much away about the plot. Because when this when this book arrived by Cheryl Strayed, which had a picture of hiking boots on the cover, his his reaction was nature walking bollocks. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, the, the, it was a rave review, and he read it, and he really he really connected with it. Um, and I think that connection comes right the way through in the film. You get lonely. Um, honestly, I think I'm lonelier in my real life than I am out here. As I miss my friends, of course, but it's not like I really have anybody waiting for me at home. How about you? Why are you here? Um, I don't know. I just need to find something in myself, you know. I think the trail is good for that. I mean, look, this has the power to fill you up again if you let it. My mother used to say something that drove me nuts. There's a sunrise and a sunset every day, and you can choose to be there for it. You can put yourself in the way of beauty. My kind of woman. One of the pleasures of doing this book was um, reading reading books and watching films or TV series that I might not otherwise um, have uh, read or watched. Um, I, I'd never I'd never read Jane Eyre, for example. Um, so talking to reading that, and then talking to Moira Buffini about her superb um, adaptation was lovely. Ditto the um, Michelle Faber's doorstop novel. Um, Crimson Petal and the White. Um, I got to read that and read the scripts and talk to Lucinda Coxon about her adaptation of that. Um, and Wild is not a piece of material that I would have come to. Um, I don't tend to, generally tend to read memoirs unless someone presses them into my hand. Um, and the film itself had kind of slightly passed me by. Um, it's a brilliantly, it's a brilliant book, incredibly moving, and it's a brilliant film, incredibly moving. Um, and the film achieves its effects remarkably simply. And um, to go back to um, Christopher Hampton, actually, um, uh, Nick Hornby's approach to the material is it's very faithful. Um, he has he has cut he's cut out certain incidents clearly because it's a you know, again a three page book. It's a um, film about an hour and fifty five minutes. Um, but the um, the key the key planks of the book. Um, her uh, Cheryl Strayed's loss of her mother, um, her descent into drug 
drug addiction and promiscuity, um, wrecking her relationship uh, with her um, partner. Um, her decision to go on this walk on the Pacific Crest Trail and this kind of, you know, solo redemptive act. Um, some of the people she meets along the way, it's all there. Um, what Nick Hornby has done is rearranged the material slightly so that it, he describes it like peeling an onion and you're sort of getting back layer by layer right to the heart of um, of her, of what is driving her, which is her mother's death. You don't, the, the book foregrounds that. You, you sort of, you almost start with that. Um, he decided that you were going to, as it were, blow your wad if you did that. So, as I recall, the the, the mother's death, um, played by uh, Laura Dern, um, the mother's death comes towards the middle of the film, and it's you know obviously we all know screenwriters, the middle of the film is the moment where something happens which spins the narrative in a new direction. It's the axis around which the entire screenplay is structured, um, and in this case, it's the revelation that you know her mother had died and how she died and what that had on Cheryl. So there was some restructuring that went on. But interestingly, if you read the book and then watch the film, it still feels like an incredibly faithful adaptation. Um, all of the all of the bits of the book that make it such a great book make it onto the screen. And to do that for a character who's mainly on her own without use of voiceover. Um, I mean I love voiceover personally, I really do. Um, whether it's first person from a character in the film or omniscient from someone else entirely um but the most they have i think is you know a sort of voice in her head and some diary extracts but it's certainly not a voiceover in a conventional sense um and to convey that you know the emotion of that of a solitary journey of sort of making a, a physical journey across country but also an emotional journey into herself and to make it as compelling as they do um i mean it's brilliantly directed by jean-marc ballet and and Fantastic performance by Rich Witherspoon, who also produced. But you know, um, you don't get that unless you've. I mean, clearly the source material gave Nick Hornby a hell of a head start, but he had a very short space of time to write the script because they had a locked-in shoot date because of Rich Witherspoon's schedule, and to turn out a screenplay that good. I mean, it really is one of those. Wow, um, this is a kind of example of how to do it. Numbers really. As, as somebody who's made his name as a novelist first, he's he's. He's more than he's more than expert, isn't he? It's sort of taking. Oh, oh, sorry, he's proved himself to be expert at taking that kind of expanded source material and able to condense it down into something that can fit into a, like you say, 110, 120 page screenplay. And interestingly, you know, he 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 started off his his career writing novels about men, and and most of the films he now writes are about women. Or he 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 is a novelist. But he specialises more, more the, in in certainly in terms of what stuff and things have been made or is in the works. He couldn't keep writing films about himself, could he? Really? Indeed. Um, but uh, but it, no, I'm quite the reverse. I mean, that's one reason why he says he, he he finds it very refreshing to step out of his skull and into someone else's. I think that's why non-fiction is an attraction. Um, facts are interesting. With Nick Hornby more than anybody else in it, I've, I got the I got the sense that it was almost like this. And this sounds cold when you say it this way, but like he, it's almost like he was able to edit what he didn't need out of the picture, so he could put what he needed in the picture. So, like you say, you you end up getting this. You end, when you re, go back to the source material, you still feel like you're. It's all in the film, but clearly it's not. Well, I mean, he talks about how when he went did his initial, you know, some writers do, some screenwriters do when they're presented with a piece of material and not a book or of some sort to adapt as you go through and underline the stuff you'd like. And he said, you know, I looked back at what I'd underlined and I could have done a, a perfectly fantastic dramatic movie without going anywhere near the Pacific Crest Trail. So um, to, have, to have filleted it down to that very um, tight. And it's one of those films, some films are two hours and they feel like three. Some films are two hours and they feel like 90 minutes. It's a two hour film that feels like 90 minutes. For me, that's, what, that's one of the highest pieces of praise. There's nothing worse than a film that feels longer than it is. And there's nothing nicer than a film that just sort of whizzes by and it takes you on a fantastic journey, but does it in a really kind of economical uh, and impactful way. Well, look, well, thank you for taking us, giving us these edited highlights, adapting your book to a podcast. 
if, if I could be so bold, the art of uh, screen adaptation, top writers reveal their craft by Alistair Owen is the book we've been referring to. And we have, we have covered um, how to write a great opening, fidelity to the novel, importance of point of view and use of voiceover, how small changes can make a difference and the challenges of nonfiction. And there's so much more in the book than just than those elements we've touched upon. And it, and, it, and and obviously, as you are a writer and as a writer myself, and I'm just thinking about having spoken to the, these dozen people, what for you, as someone that you obviously would have gone in with some knowledge, you know, you, you've kind of, you, you've, you've um, and, and an appreciation of, of adapting works of literature for screen, what was the what was the most surprising reveal that you got from all the people you spoke to about adaptation that you wouldn't have appreciated before you did the book? I think it was probably uh, how how different people's approaches can be. Um, I mean, it it would be interesting to re-edit the book in that Tales of the Script version and see see the the radical variation between some of their answers. Um, so I suppose the answer to the question is. Um, Screenwriting manuals, however well written, can tend to feel at times a little bit proscriptive. This is the way you should do it. What this book does, as you said at the start, is it gives you 12 versions of how to do it. And you can kind of pick and choose. It's not necessarily going to, um, you're not going to necessarily read the chapter with David Hare um, and, and think everything he says is entirely correct. Although you may well, you know, he's very experienced, incredibly intelligent um, skilled dramatist and and adapter. Um, I talked to him about the reader and the hours, um, but you might you might see some of his answers to questions and agree with them and disagree with others. Um, similarly, I mean, I, I think Jeremy Brock was the other writer in the in the book who um, who did the um, more recent uh, film version of Brides Have Revisited, rewriting. Interestingly, um, we're doing a new version. The previous version had been done by Andrew Davis. Um, and you know you you got that was the one uh, chance in the book actually where you have one project which had two writers in the book both worked on it and you got a chance to see their different approaches so you know you might pick and choose a bit from Brock and a bit from Davis and you can see how their particular approaches and characters would have you know what what Davis would have brought to the first few drafts of that and what Brock brought to the last few drafts and and you know the film that emerges from that. So I think it's very much about, you know, here are 12 writers. They they they're very different people. They therefore choose material that's very different for different reasons and they adapt it in different ways. Um but you can pick and choose from that what most closely chimes um with your um you know with your character and your approach. Maybe it'll make you you know, reinforce things you sort of instinctively felt. Maybe it'll make you think differently about other things. Um, but I, I think I think it, what it should reinforce is that actually um, you should just you should try stuff out. Um, you should uh, you know whatever works. Um, don't necessarily get too tied into what screenwriters screenwriting manuals tell you you can and cannot do because there are always going to be exceptions to that rule. Now. It's easier to make an exception to a screenwriting rule if you're an, uh, uh, an established writer like the 12 people in the book, you know, people like um, David Hare or Olivia Hetreid was the other writer in the book who, who adapted Wuthering Heights and Girl with a Pearl Earring. Um, you know, she's president of the Writers Guild. Um, you know, once you've achieved that level, then I suspect you have a little bit more latitude, a bit harder possibly to, to have the have the confidence to play around with rules if you're if you're just breaking in, you know, if you've read a screenwriting manual, writing your first screenplay. But you have to take the time to find your voice. You have to take the time to get comfortable with the medium. And if that means playing around with stuff, make some mistakes. You know, maybe they will be mistakes. So then maybe they weren't. Maybe they weren't. You know, we can all point to, I'm sure, movies which don't fit the pattern of, um, of the screenwriting manuals, which have been made. One thing that I learned from my, from myself looking at it, and I've not read it all, but from what I have read, um, is 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 while I feel confident doing something from scratch, I don't feel as confident as a screenwriter going the kind of Sarah Phelps route or or or, or whatever, where where you're kind of looking for what you want to do, because I still feel a bit where I am as, as a writer. I still feel a bit like I. Um, I need to be a bit faithful to the source material because 
I'm beholden to that at the moment more than more than I am beholden to getting the work done through screen. And that's probably because I'm not getting, nobody's paying me to do it. So there's not that the, the hard decisions are not there for me to make. I've kind of given myself the easy things to do. Um, but I, I'm trying to think. Of, I'm trying to remember if it was Hoss that said it was um, how he um, he sort of lives with the book and then coldly distances himself from the source material over time. So. Was it Hoss that said that? I no, I think Hoss is the one that keeps the book pretty close. Um, other other writers in the in the um, book certainly say that you know the, they the book is there for the first draft or two, and then then really all they're working with is their screenplay. That when once it's become its own beast, and then maybe later on in the process, you you reread the book to see if there's anything you've missed or if a scene isn't working properly. Maybe you've cut something. I'd forgotten who that was. That 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 stuck out. That was to Olivia. Me. That was Olivia Hedreed, Actually, she talks about. Um, you know, um, sometimes you will, if a scene isn't working, it might be because you've cut something that you shouldn't have. Um, and, and maybe you go back to the book and you see why does that scene work in the book? And, or, you know, there's just, um, uh, the, there may be some great stuff that you've missed or a line of dialogue. But, but or, you somebody know. Who, who had the book, who had the book at home, at office, by the bed. That was Hoss, yeah, and a copy in the loo. Yeah, that was it. That was, that was what I mean, is that idea of, constantly dipping into it and then eventually just sort of being cold to it by the by the end of it and then maybe I'd be more like I'd be more like that I would have the book with me constantly um I've only done one adaptation where I spent a significant amount of time with it and that was a spec adaptation for my own well my own amusement really I did the one thing you should never do which is I adapted a book albeit a book with a by a non-living author which I did not own the rights to um then of course I became extremely passionate about it Found out where the rights were, and uh, I did get it read by a couple of people. But I, I had the novel with me all the time. Um, I ended up diverging from it quite substantially because the third act worked fine on the page as a novel, but didn't work on uh, as a screenplay. But um, it, when it was a wartime novel, and I, I showed it to one of the writers in my first um, anthology, Frank Cottrell Boyce, who was the only writer, the only screenwriter, but the only person I ever showed the screenplay who had read the original book. And he said, oh, this is a very faithful adaptation, isn't it? And that was thrilling to me because the answer was, well, actually, no. The last third of this script is entirely me. So there's clearly a seamless join here between 1942, as written by this novelist, and 1942, as written by me. Um, but nonetheless, the novel remained by me, the, the tone of it, the style of it. Um, and even though I had thrown out the last third almost completely, I felt that the, the 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 tone of it, the spirit of it, was very much present throughout, and that was what I was um, that was what I was guiding. Towards. When you go down that road of trying to adapt, and I'm and like you, I've only I've only adapted the one the one novel, but what it does do is, and and, and I've since sort of looked at other, I've looked at adaptations and compared them. So, for example, I um, I looked at Waking Fright from the seventies, and and in that one, the character that Donald Pleasance plays in the book is barely in it but for the adaptation to screen he becomes he becomes the external the, the internal dialogue of the central character becomes donald pleasant's character which then makes him a much more prominent character in the story than he is in the book and i thought it was a really interesting choice to make so you get the same information and obviously you you get what is you take what is an internal obstacle to the character and turn it into a physical obstacle in the in the shape of a man saying to you, literally saying, no, you can't, or you're a shit, or whatever else, which is what, when the book's doing it, the book's going, oh, I'm a shit, I'm no good. And that's quite, it just was a, it, I mean, it's that's kind of a really obvious one in just to show the differences between the two. But also the um, thinking of like the challenges of doing something like Atonement is, is the playing with time a novel can play with time and introduce people like a film or a TV series can. I think a TV series can get away with it a little bit more, but certainly films struggle to bring in characters from nowhere. Whereas when you read it, and you don't notice this until you try to adapt them, I think that in a novel, you could be like, well, Jim was a, Jim used to run a local skip company. He'd always been around the area since 1974, but he left and went to Australia. And you've written, all you've written is two sentences and you know loads about him. But try saying that in a screen, and it just sounds like you're telling somebody what a character's doing or thinking, and we don't see the world like that visually, do we? Uh, no, no, and I, that that kind of thing is very hard to do, especially with longer, more more diffuse novels. Um, I mean, I think one of the one of the brilliant things about Atonement, um, 
is that uh, it, it, there there is there is some playing around with time um, in the in the film, and it's sort of it's to achieve the way I hadn't realised this, but uh, I realised it. The truth of it, when Christopher told me, is what what McEwen will often do is he will start at a point in a chapter. Well, a bit like what we were talking about earlier with James Salis in Drive, but it's seamless, you know, in Drive, the first chapter is he's in the motel and then chapter two is you flash back. Whereas what McEwen will do in the chapters of Atonement is you'll start at some point further on and you'll gradually work your way back to how you arrived at that point. And it's quite subtle. You wouldn't even necessarily notice he was doing it. Um, and what Christopher and um, Joe Wright worked out between them was what they called a, I think it called a flash sideways. In other words, you'd get to a moment like, for example, when um, young Bryony is standing at the upstairs window and she sees Robbie and Cecilia down by the fountain and she can sort of misinterpret what she sees. And there's a moment where she um, closes the window and, and as she closes the window, uh, it, it cues a, a cut to a slight, you know, a time frame, maybe half an hour earlier. Um, so it's not a big flashback, it's a tiny flashback, but it's sort of, it's using the grammar of film to achieve something that um, uh, McEwen does in the book. And again, I think that's one of the reasons, and you, you wouldn't necessarily realise that the first time you saw it. I'm going to draw us to a close because I know that if 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 I let us, we'll talk. I'll talk forever about this because I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I think you've written a magnificent book, so I shall remind people as to what that is. That's the art of screen adaptation. Top writers are real their craft. Alistair Owen, thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.